Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the Long War. We're back for another episode to discuss the Israel-Palestinian war. I don't even know what what to call this war. Maybe my guests uh, today can help me with that title. Today, we have back uh, both uh, Benham and Joe. We talked last Friday, and uh, we're going to continue that conversation. Benham is a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues. And of course, Joe Trusman, he's a research analyst at FDD's Long War Journal, where he focuses primarily on Palestinian militant groups and Hezbollah. Venom, Joe, welcome back to Generation Jihad. Pleasure. Thank you. Hey, thanks for having me again. Yep, it's it's certainly a long war. What day are we in? Is it uh, day 17? Day eight, like, was it like 18? No, long. Yeah, like 18, I think. I think right. somewhere around like 18 yeah, or 19. It's, it's crazy. And just remember, it hasn't even, you know, we haven't even gotten to the, this is the calm before the storm, if that's even believable. Oh, yeah. Um, look, we're going to take a look today at some uh, some bigger issues. Um, you know, the, you know, we've been doing a lot of the tactical stuff, what's happening on the ground, but we're going to kind of zoom out and uh, address some bigger questions about strategy, about, uh, you know, the implications of Iranian militias getting involved, um, you know. You know what happens after uh, the ground invasion, things of that that nature. Um, before we get into that, really quick, Joe, um, uh, anything happens since the last time we talked? Two days? Is it the? Are we in the grind right now, where it's just strike, counter strike, or has anything new developed? Right. So it's yeah, basically strike. A lot of that, just you know, the rockets fired from uh, from Gaza. Israel responds back and forth, back and forth. Some stuff again with uh, in the north with Hezbollah, uh, their their guys are getting hammered as far as their their members. Their uh, guided missile teams are getting near the border. The Israelis are finding them. They're getting eliminated. So there's uh, almost forty killed, maybe around thirty five uh, members of Hezbollah since October seventh or October, I guess. Yeah, around that day, maybe the ninth. I think the first one occurred. Um, so anyway. Uh, so yeah, so that and uh, there was a uh, appears there was uh, some rocket fire yesterday from Syria. Um, but regardless of all that, uh, so that's still going. Something super important uh, that I want to mention. This has just happened in the last about hour or two. Seems like there was an important strike. Something happened in Gaza, specifically Gaza City. Uh, I think the Israelis hit something or someone. So it's one of those things. Uh, the Israeli media is um, kind of hinting that something happened. That there's going to be a, a, reportedly there's a statement being made by the IDF spokesperson's office here in about uh, say half an hour. So I'm assuming they're going to say something, uh, something important happened uh, from the people that I talked to um, regarding this. I, I do believe something did happen. I just don't know what, because of course we know that the Israelis are looking for their primary, one of their primary objectives is to find uh, Hamas leaders, right? And they've taken out some Hamas leaders, like mid-level Hamas leaders. So they haven't taken out the big guy, big guys, Sinwar, uh, Isa, Dave, uh, and others. Um, so I don't know. Um, 
it's possible that one of those guys were taken out. I don't know. So, well, I think by the time this, you know, everyone starts, everyone listens to this podcast, we'll know what happened. So, uh, but that's the super important stuff. And there's other stuff as well, but I don't want to take up more time. But I think right now, I think that's the biggest uh, piece of news in the last couple hours. Well, hopefully good news. Joe, keep an eye on it as we're recording. And just for the audience, we're recording around 1230 uh, Eastern on Wednesday. So, you know, if that big news breaks by the time you listen to it, uh, you got a hint of it here first. Um, well, maybe not first. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, and Joe, one quick question. When you mentioned um, rocket teams getting close to the border, I assume you're talking about the the uh, Hezbollah. They're firing anti-tank rockets, things of that nature. Not. Uh, oh, yeah. Sorry. Thank you for uh, uh, clarifying. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, the guided missiles. They're firing um, mortars. There's some rocket fire as well. So I think a few times there's been drones, but it's the guys that that, that get up close to the border that are getting getting hit they have the dangerous job the guys meaning hezbollah and in, in, from southern lebanon so that's important um there are also islamic members of islamic jihad and hamas that are doing it but not nearly as much uh so but that's happened in the last couple of weeks but the main thing is the the hezbollah members getting um being killed uh like i said there are about 35 right now approximately i don't have the exact number so that that um, the number continues to rise each day I would call that a good start. Um, so let's uh, we'll get let's get into the start talking about the bigger issues. So there's been a lot of reporting over the last several days that the Biden administration is working to slow or put the brakes on Israel's uh, offensive into Gaza. Uh, the concerns are over hostages. The U.S. wants to get its hostages out, get foreign hostages out. I find that a little ironic that there's not a much focus on the Israeli hostages, um, as well as getting aid into Gaza, which I find to be a little bit absurd. You're at war with, let's face it, Hamas, it rules Gaza. It is the governing body, and it essentially declared war on Israel with its, I mean, it does with its charter, but with its actions on October 7th, um, that is, you know, that is war in itself. So to provide aid and comfort to your enemy is absolutely insane. In, um, but and then I just saw this headline uh, pop up. It says Israel agrees to delay Gaza ground invasion until U.S. can deploy air defense systems. And these air defense systems that's being talked about in this article are for U.S. forces uh, deployed throughout the the Middle East. So U.S. troops in Iraq and Syria, um, as well as the Gulf countries, uh, Saudi Arabia, etc. Um, I'll start with you, Benham. Um, what is your perception about you know? Is, are the Israelis making a mistake here by delaying this offensive? Um, what are some of the potential impacts um, of them doing so? Are they? Do you think they're being strong-armed by the Biden administration to to put the brakes on things? Uh, you mentioned the the magic word, which is the P word, uh, perception, and I and I actually think that is the most important but least spoken about element of this war. Uh, where you have even the bulk of the, the moderate Sunni Arab states talking about a ceasefire, uh, as if October 7 itself did not happen and that does not necessitate some kind of uh, more kinetic or military response. Uh, you have the Iranians trying to create a division between Jerusalem and Washington, whose assets will get hit where and when, and making the defending party or the defending parties responsible for any violence that follows a terror attack. 
there may be some political motivation for the Biden administration to try to get Israel to delay, but I'm not going to read too much into that. Yes, I think what you said about the Gaza aid convoys, I mean, obviously Hamas controls the entire territory. Not only could they abscond with the aid, as you've seen them take fertilizer and develop, you know, solid propellant for rockets, as you've seen them take piping and develop some of the aluminum tubing needed for rockets, as you've seen them do all this stuff in the past. Nonetheless, the perception of someone standing and offering the aid, I think, is going to be key to managing this information war. Just like you can't say on the one side, some folks uh, saying that this is an open air prison and then also holding Israel responsible for trying to give Gazans jobs and economic opportunities. I don't know a lot of open air prisons where you have those jobs and economic opportunities. So the, it, it is critical, I think, to at least even offer it to manage the, the perception uh, of the way this war is being fought. Uh, now, to the to the military side, to prevent Iran from being able to successfully divide is, uh, Israel and America, uh, Iran is threatening that it can't control its proxies. That's what Khamenei said, I think, just a few days after, uh, I think on October 17th, he said that, you know, the resistance cannot be controlled. Even Iran cannot control them. And that's designed to say America stops supporting Israel and that you will come under attack. In fact, U.S. forces have come under attack almost uh, just under 10 times, at least, with rockets and drones in Iraq and Syria. And I am for making sure wherever we are deployed does have appropriate air and missile defense coverage. Uh, we can't have a repeat of 2020 at all. We don't even have a good response ratio against the militias or their patron right now in, in Syria, let alone in Iraq. Uh, and if the delays in the Israeli ground invasion uh, as much as it may still provide Hamas political space and breathing room and, and, and you know, and creating more of these, uh, what is it called, human, human shields and, and things of that nature, uh, it'll provide more time for planning on the Israeli side, and it'll provide more time for the U.S. to defend the architecture that it has in the region so there is no soft underbelly. Uh, so I, on balance, as much as I could see it being a political problem, uh, you know, prudence dictates that the number of times Israel has gone to war with Gaza, struck targets in Gaza, and had land operations in Gaza necessitates us thinking this thing through because this is going to be unlike anything else. And if that needs a week or two weeks, in my view, that's okay. But I'm not a general. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to share just a quick, and then I'm going to turn to you, Joe, on, on particularly on the propaganda um, issue. But you know, look, it's Israel has mobilized over three hundred thousand troops. You know, question, you know, they're sitting right now. Uh, Hamas right now is organizing. They're giving time and space to plan its defense as well. And I always believe that uh, actually I'm certain there's a ticking clock on Israel once these conflicts begin. And I think extending them and dragging them out um, works against Israel. I also happen to just lean towards um, in particularly in situations like these into taking action. Um I believe in having taking the initiative. Look, if if I think if Israel hasn't figured out its strategy, and we'll get into this a little more, figured out its overall strategy for Gaza by now. Um, well, look, the reality is if they do go in on the ground, it's going to be a lengthy operation, and they have the time to figure out what the end game is. And we'll we'll, we'll talk about that actually in the next question as well. Um, but Joe, um, you know, to Benham's point about the the propaganda, does it matter? If the U.S. or if Israel is showing that it's willing to send in aid to Gaza, does that convince anyone in, in your estimation 
I mean, you know, do the pro Hamas people, does the Arab street, do the Arab governments, are they swayed by this type of argument or, you know, in essence, are we just pissing in the wind? And I think you can probably figure out which side I come down, but you are certainly uh, willing or uh, allowed to disagree. Right. Uh, the way I view it, if people have already made, whether it's the Arab streets or uh, like uh, Arab governments or, you know, uh, anybody in the region, I, I think that people have already made their minds up. Okay. I don't, I'm sorry, but that's just what I'm seeing. And so either you're against what Israel has been doing as far as the response or you're completely for it. Uh, so um, I, I don't think a lot of people are going to be changing their minds about aid and don't get me wrong i'm not saying aid is wrong or things like that i'm not saying that i'm just talking about you know just the how people are thinking right so so yeah but there is propaganda value to it and uh uh terrorist groups in the in gaza are taking advantage of it i'll just give you one example so uh, yesterday abu hamza abu hamza is a uh He's a spokesperson for his, of Islamic Jihad's so-called military wing. Again, I've said it before, there's no difference between, as far as Palestinian armed groups, there's no difference between an, uh, an, a military wing and a political wing. I'm hearing that a lot in the news. Oh, it's this political bureau, this political bureau, that of Hamas or whatever. They work together. There's no um, there's no firewall between, between the two, okay? So... That just I just really want to emphasize that. So that being said, this Abu Hamza guy is saying, a military spokesman is saying, put out published a statement just basically deriding the uh the Israelis saying, well, you're is something to the effect that you guys are just sitting out uh in the Gaza periphery just waiting and wasting your time uh for a ground war, right? So he's taking so he knows they know that they're out there waiting and just things are getting delayed. And of course, he derided the United States, calling him, of course, the great line of uh that we hear a lot so we've heard a lot uh that uh america is the great satan you know yeah that's uh so anyway so it's so there's some propaganda coming out of it uh especially from the armed groups uh but yeah i don't uh, this is all of this is just i think this delay with this with the americans and the israelis i don't think it's a big deal really if because the thing is the Americans, the U.S. government, and of course other governments as well across the region, they're very worried that a this, this region is going to spiral out of control, right? Because uh, I, there's been threats from Iraqi militias targeting to target U.S. troops, and they've done it already in Iraq and uh, and actually in Kuwait and the UAE. So and that came out yesterday. So um, there's a lot of tension in the region, and they're just being, I think, they're being careful. So taking things slowly as far as the United States and Israel. So, uh, so yeah. Yeah. But my, I just, I just I, I, I makes... a... Oh, go ahead. Ben. Yeah. Go. Sorry. Sorry to interrupt. But I have a quick two finger and I wanted to just to mention something on your first question. I know Joe is definitely the most new savvy and I don't, I definitely don't even have Twitter, but, uh, I have the luxury of having this conversation with you on one phone and look down on my other phone. And I just saw something come in less than an hour ago not to derail the conversation, but to go back to what else is happening. There's this Wall Street Journal story that's breaking less than an hour ago about these fighters having trained in Iran. Um, so hopefully that changes the nature of the political debate uh, in these capitals where we have the disconnect the dots phenomenon between patron and proxy. Uh, you know, the, the Wall Street Journal was also this paper about two weeks ago that ended up saying that Iran did green light the operation from Lebanon. 
uh, and was involved in the training, but now we have more direct evidence uh, of this coming uh, from their regional reporting. So I just wanted to get that on folks' radar. Yeah, and you know, on that issue, you know, sadly for some people, for many people, they're going to need to see a signed confession by Kamene, uh, the written order with him standing, you know, in front of a today's version of the New York Times, admitting to ordering ordering the, you know, Hamas to conduct its attack, or else nothing else will do. And you know, this is where. I guess I'm just very pessimistic on the, you know, the information propaganda side of this war where everyone knows what the Iranian militias do, uh, what their proxies do. They know that they take orders. They know that we know that Quds Force officers are embedded often with these groups or in direct contact with them, providing aid, weapons, assistance and guidance and planning and training, all of these things. And yet, as you said, Madam, right, as soon as a conflict like that, like this breaks out, everyone wants to disconnect the dots. This is where part of where I'm just like, let's get this on. Let's get this over with. Let's get this or get this started, because the longer this drags out to me, the weaker Israel looks, the, the weaker the U.S. looks. And these groups, primarily, they know nothing but strength. They view indecision and um, delay, empty threats. Failure to respond like the militia, Iraqi militia and Syrian militias attacks on U.S. bases, it's all viewed as weakness, and it could actually lead to worse consequences, in my opinion. That's just my experience with jihad. With, you know, I'll, I'll just put them under the broad, better umbrella of jihadism. You know, even when I covered the drone campaign, you know what? Their leaders were getting killed at a pretty good clip, not enough to destroy al-Qaeda and other groups. But you know what their response to that was? They're just afraid to fight us on the ground. Drones, they viewed the drones as something dangerous to the groups, but as a form of weakness because we wouldn't go into North and South Waziristan and Pakistan and fight them toe to toe. That was, you know, so we, I always try to look at this from the enemy's perspective. And when I, when I look at it through their eyes, what I see is I see delay, I see weakness, I see indecisiveness. Um, and I, you know, that can lead to worse things, but, um, you know, on, on the issue say, of the, go ahead, Venom. Sorry, sorry, not to keep inter interjecting. I, I will say this. I, go for it. I, I see a, a big difference between a delay in U.S. returning fire, especially if it's received indirect fire in Iraq and Syria, than the nature of this Israeli uh, military response against Gaza. Uh, it's not that the Israelis aren't responding. They are striking targets. Their, 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 their aerial campaign is well underway. Uh, yes, they may have had to have plans in, in the reservoir for a land invasion of Gaza, but I don't think any of them thought it would be on the back end of the slaughter of 1,400 civilians in this fashion. So it does necessitate a little bit of creative thinking. For us, for us in Iraq and Syria, certainly, uh, you know, you have Article 2, you have the right to self-defense. Uh, the return of fire, our problem historically is not just that we don't have a good response ratio, we don't even respond to the point of origin of the attacks. So for us, a delay after receiving fire, not on the back end of an October 7 kind of attack, but just where our basing structure is, where we're operating in Iraq and Syria, we that, you know, I'm 100% with you on any kind of delay uh, ends up benefiting the militia rather than us politically. On Israel, you know, I will say as the as the Muslim American on this call, if I was the IDF or, or the IAF or whatever, I would actually put out 
this Quranic injunction. Uh, I'll say it in Arabic and I'll translate it, which is makaru wa makaran wallahu khairul makirin, which is, uh, and they planned and he planned, and verily God is the best of planners. So if anyone in Hamas or PIJ or, or, or who supports them and has facilitated their military and terror attack in Gaza thinks that the IDF, supported by the U.S. or whatever, is delaying because they fear something uh, and trying to spin the time as uh, a, a political victory for Hamas or whoever else, uh, they're going to have something else coming. Uh, so there's a way to bridge the political gap on this, but I don't want to. I don't want to be- belabor the delay point, but I could. I could one line mic drop Hamas with that. <laughs> well, look, and um, I actually think that in look the, to to me the Israelis should be moving. In Iraq and Syria, I think we've already lost that war. The U.S. That is, those bases are sparsely. There's just not enough. If the militias decided to muster their forces and throw thousands of troops at them, many of them which would be slaughtered, they could overrun them. And if you think that's not possible, I could point you to several instances in Iraq, where, or I'm sorry, in Afghanistan, actually, and back in the day in Iraq, where this actually has happened. Um, where U.S. bases have been overrun. Um, and then when you add in the technology that these militias have, particularly with drones and uh, more advanced weaponry that they're given by the Iranians, the U.S. Um, time to be decisive was years ago. Um, they're all We're already viewed as weak in those areas. And, and I'm of one of, um, one of two decisions need to be made. Either those bases need to be beefed up with, you know, thousands of troops each so they can actually defend themselves, or we need to leave. Um, neither of those are ver- are politically viable in my estimation. The Biden administration isn't going to want to beef up these bases. I don't know that Iraq would even permit the U.S. to do this. Um, and leaving is the ultimate sign of weakness. So we're we're essentially in a hostage situation in Iraq and Syria. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's just that's 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 my take on this. Um, it's why we haven't res- responded decisively to these attacks because I think the Department of Defense is fearful that you know that it could be worse you know um they they're just getting slapped around right now they just don't want to get you know shot in the head in the middle of the night so um let's turn to quickly to israel's strategy a long-term strategy here in particularly with gaza right now we we recognize you know look the hezbollah threat obviously israel has to um prepare for that up north and I do suspect that that is some of the reason for delay. But again, we're now 18 days into this. The Israelis should have always been prepared for a two-front war um, and prepared for this type of situation. So this is where I'm a little bit maybe um, less forgiving about this delay. But um, what do we do? We know in Gaza, particularly, do we know what the overall objective is? Is it the defeat of Hamas? Of Hamas? Uh, is it unconditional surrender? Or is it going to go back to see counterterrorism as usual? Joe, I'm going to start with you on that. Do you have a good sense as to what Israel's ultimate goals are? After, you know, look, we are all in belief that Israel is going to launch a ground invasion if it wants to, to defeat Hamas, which I do think we can agree is one of the goals that it's going to have to go in on the ground. But do you, do you have a sense at this point in time as to what Israel's ultimate objective is in, in Gaza? Right. Well, they want to get, they can't live with Hamas beside them anymore, at least uh, after what happened on October 7th, right? So the, uh, so the, 
from what my understanding is that they want to rid Hamas uh, of uh, or get rid of Hamas out of Gaza, right? So that's the but but uh, I'm getting a sense that there isn't a good good plan to execute that because we've got to remember it's Gaza, right? So it's not just you don't just go in there. Oh, we're going to take out a few guys and that's it. It's way more complicated than that, and. I've been speaking to people uh, that are familiar with, uh, with the, what's going on uh, in in the region, and I'm totally being cryptic for a reason. And uh, you know, it's just there's a lot of confusion of of okay, well, you go into Gaza, okay, what are you going to do exactly, and then what's the plan after? Nobody, my sense is that nobody really understands or knows what's going on there. Okay, uh, because the problem is, and we've talked about this before, Hamas isn't only in Gaza. Hamas is in Turkey. Hamas is in Doha or in Qatar. Is Hamas is in Malaysia. So Hamas isn't just Gaza. So uh, and then. As well as, well, if you're going to get rid of Hamas in Gaza, well, what about the West Bank, right? You're going to have to operate in the West Bank as well. And not like we saw in Janine in July where they it was just, you know, it was a few days of taking out some um, uh, some um, terrorist infrastructure. This is going to be something, it would be significant, right? So, so yeah, there's just a lot of I don't knows, a lot of confusion. Uh, what the Israelis are planning to do exactly? Yes, we they we I I understand their goal is to get rid of Hamas, uh, maybe globally. I don't know, but at least in Gaza, right? And I'm, I'm assuming the West Bank, but I don't know. I don't get the sense of how they're going to do it. What's the plan? Are they going to reoccupy Gaza? Or I'm sorry, let me reiterate that. Are they going to occupy Gaza? Uh, I just. I, I don't know. It's it just doesn't seem. This seems like something that's going to take many, many, many months, probably years. Um, and then you know, there's and I know the Americans are saying uh, are, are trying to remind the Israelis that hey, look what happened in Iraq to us, right? Uh, trying to take over like 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 a Mosul, for example, and you know all about that uh, bill. So it's not easy, right? It takes a long time. So I don't know. I, I, it's just a lot of confusion. I'm getting more than anything. And I wish I could really answer your question, but I I can't. Well, listen, not an, a non-answer. I mean, this is part of the problem, right? This is what we're getting at. We don't know. We're trying to game this out. Um, the fact that, you know, we haven't heard a, a, a clear articulate strategy 18 days into it is concerning. Um, some advice to uh, any Israelis listening um, in the Israeli military or government, do not take advice from U.S. generals. Um, they lost two wars. Um, I wouldn't take any advice from them. Take our weapons. Um, you know, take the promise of support if, if Hezbollah intervenes, but don't listen to them when it comes to counterinsurgency or any of this other nonsense or proportionate force and things of this nature. Um, you know, oh, and two in Iraq and Afghanistan and Somalia ain't looking so good either. So, um, yeah, Benham, um, you know, and, and Joe, by the way, you, you hit on it, you know, what is, you know, at, look, so one of the things that I'm in agreement that like the Israelis should be pushing into God, you know, that they have to root Hamas out, um, from, from, from Gaza. That has to be done to me. The sooner you start that, the better for reasons I had mentioned earlier, and it's going to be lengthy. They have time to figure out the what next while they're doing this. Um, 
governments certainly are capable of doing it. They don't have to have the answer of what to do six months from now when they have six months of work in, ahead of them. As long as they come up with that answer within the six months, we'll be fine. Um, Benham, what's your what's your perception of this situation? Where do you think um, – how does Israel deal with this? Particularly, you have the Iranian aspect, right? You have all these groups, as Joe had mentioned. They're in Turkey. They're in Qatar. They're in Syria. They're in Lebanon. They're – it, Hamas isn't just Gaza, which really complicates this. You know, look, my answer to some of that is Israel, get your assassination campaign up. It's time for some of these guys to trip downstairs and drown in bathtubs and choke on chicken wings and things like that. And, you know, car failures. Uh, but um, that's one way to do it. But that also requires um, serious commitment, but these are the things that have to happen. Ben, what's your take on the situation? Where would do you do you have a sense for uh, an end game here? I think um, sometimes people in DC say that I, you know, give too much credit to Iranian strategy, or sometimes that I say that uh, the Iranians uh, have more strategic capabilities than tactical capabilities. Uh, I'm not in the business of granting America's adversaries uh, this kind of honorific. The reason I say some of the things I say and what I'm about to say now is that, unfortunately, the nature of our warfighting, and by uh, our warfighting, I, I don't mean just America, I mean the Western world, and the nature of our politics, uh, and I don't mean America again, I mean the Western world, and I'm putting Israel in both of those, has been quite public for the past few decades. And even if there is no sustained political interaction uh, with America or with Israel through the Islamic Republic, uh, they have learned a lot from the past uh, three or four decades. And in particular, the past three decades, Khamenei, Iran's supreme leader, is the longest serving autocrat of the Middle East. He didn't get to be that way by accident. Um, and then, Bill, you routinely say this, don't deny your adversary of agency. Don't, you don't need to ridicule them. You need to see the world as how they see it. Uh, this guy, this regime, which if you take out oil from the GDP earnings, even though last year they had about $56 billion in non-oil exports, that's the highest ever, still the economy, how an economy that small is able to perfect, uh, uh, befuddle uh, and, and run circles around uh, us in the West. Um, there is some kind of a skill behind that. It doesn't require admiring it, but it means understanding it. And the reason I'm setting this whole thing up is that fog that Joe painted and that crossroads in the Israeli strategy that you painted gets to the heart of what Iran sought to effectuate here with its uh, support for Hamas in the long term and its blessing of the October 7 operation in the short term, which is there's a Persian saying, which is the, the double-headed stick. Uh, the, and usually there's in polite company, they'll tell you it's, it's a double-headed golden stick. But in, in, in impolite company, in the original phrase is a, is a rather than the stick being covered in gold in, in the two places, it's covered in, for lack of a better word, fecal matter in two places, which means in translated, damned if you do, damned if you don't. If Israel does not respond, if Israel does not uproot uh, Hamas from Gaza, if there is no overwhelming display of, of military force, uh, then you have precisely what the newspapers in Iran have been saying, which is that the heymane, the kind of glory, uh, it's an Arabic word uh, that exists in Persian, that that kind of awe-inspiring glory is, go is going to be gone. Uh, that the 
root of the Israeli fight to live another day strategy of the war between the wars and the mowing of the grass, that too will have failed. Uh, and that opens the door up for more offensive operations, not from Hamas, but from Hezbollah, but from the militias in Syria and the multi-domain stuff, potentially again, the Houthis in, in Yemen, which we, we need to talk about. So if you merely absorb Iran and you're responsible and you want to avoid the human catastrophe that is going to be any kind of land war, you want to avoid the images that doesn't give Iran a political victory, and you merely say, we had a horrible thing several times the scale of 9-11, and we've done some airstrikes, and maybe we do some of the things Bill is saying about the extraterritorial operations, but then we handcuff ourselves so as not to give Iran the ultimate political victory it wants. Well, you just bought them the breathing room for the military victories that it wants, the death by a thousand cuts approach, because now they're going to be even more emboldened. And then if you do the things that everyone is talking about intending on doing, which is the, the land the land invasion and the uprooting of Hamas, or at a minimum, just defanging Hamas, right? Pretend they know where every single Qassam rocket, every Ayash rocket, every J-90, all of these stuff that they've either gotten or developed. If you strike all of that stuff and you disarm them, hypothetically, uh, the pictures coming out of that operation, right? Iran gambled that the Abraham Accords was skin deep in the places that it was coming. So Government-wise, yeah, Bahrain and the UAE solidly behind Israel on this one. But the places that actually have land borders, that have had some Palestinian refugees, like Egypt and Jordan, and they've had older peace trees with Israel, a bit more shaky now than before. Not to mention the heartland and the rest of the region, which either Iran controls or Iran has proxies operating in. And then not to mention the, the broader Arab and Muslim world reaction, and not to mention the dissent in many Western countries between internationalist, isolationist, hawkish and dovish, pro-Israel and anti-Israel, and each side claiming to be the defender of human rights and moral justice. Iran is not was not unaware of these things. They were con cognizant of these things, and they're counting on these things. So even if Israel goes all the way in or militarily accomplishes the narrowest victory in, in Gaza, what Iran is counting on is whether it's what you said, Bill, which is in six months' time, or if the Israelis do it uh, in a way that Joe was talking about, which is a bit more dragged out. Uh, whenever they win the war, they will lose the peace because the planning and the effectiveness of, of the operation will hinder them from building any kind of stable order in Gaza, whether that's bringing in the PA or or you know having some kind of international thing or even expanding the radius of Gaza. I heard something about uh, you know with the Egyptians that the way the military war was won will prevent the political war from being accomplished. And from that rubble will come the next ember of the resistance. And you can bet uh, the Islamic Republic will be waiting to fund that. There was a joke on Iranian social media, uh, some, some friends flagged for me, I think it was a, it was a live in one of these channels. Uh, and uh, you know, the Iranian population has been chanting since 2009, not Gaza, not Lebanon, my life for Iran. I think everyone knows where the Iranian people's views and values are on this one. They clearly stand with Israel. But the government is 180 degree opposite. And there was just some random guy commenting in these comment boxes. And he was saying, you know, obviously it was Iran that gave the, the, the money and support to Hamas and Gaza. And now after this war, Iran is going to be uh, using our money to rebuild Gaza. So you can bet the Islamic Republic is going to be waiting, even in the wings of a military victory. And, and that's why I, I, I'm in the business right now of just reducing expectations and being content with a little bit of bought time. 
because I see the Islamic Republic smiling either way. Doesn't mean the Islamic Republic doesn't have a catch-22 of its own with should Hezbollah enter, yes or no? What if the U.S. responds more kinetically, yes or no? They, they're in a pickle themselves. But, at, but they're smiling because they're cognizant of the pickle they put the Israelis in. I, I actually concur 100%, uh, Ben. I mean, you, you're absolutely right. You know, I always say you have to respect your enemy, right? That doesn't mean I like him. It doesn't mean I'm being complimentary. And look, I was accused of the same thing with the Taliban. And, you know, we all saw how that one worked out. Um, I, I, you know, you're right. The, the, this To me, this is the Israel is, you know, has no good solutions. To me, the worst solution, though, is indecisiveness, is not going in. Um, is I don't think Israel has a chance if it if it doesn't tackle Hamas head on. Um, that could be the end of the be the end. You know, Iran will unleash. You know, the blood will be in the water at that point, and the sharks will be circling. Everyone will be trying to take a shot at um, Israel at that point. Um, I think you're right, though. It does seem like this will wind up being an, an extended fight, uh, as you noted. Iran it will will. Just come in and sponsor the next group. If it's not Hamas, it'll be something else. Um, but that is survival for for the Israeli regime, uh, for the Israeli country. Um, it's you know, to you know, part of the problem. I forget what the I saw the numbers go over. There was a poll that went around, and it said something like, "I believe it was a, a half of the Palestinian population in Gaza is under. It might have been twenty or twenty five years old. So, it, whatever that is." This all they have known, but all they've been brought up on the Palestinian children who are now young adults is the hate that Hamas has put and, and groups have put out in their propaganda in the schools. I mean, how do you get past this, even if Hamas is defeated? And, you know, I, the only solution I could think of, well, there's several solutions, but, the, you know, one of them is not even possible, which would be one would be expelling the uh, Palestinians from Gaza and annexing the territory. And the other one, you know, is occupation and then or going back to the Mota Grass CT model, which we know is a failure. Um, and to me, which just leads to bigger issues like this. So it, it seems to me there has to be some type of occupation. But boy, I just question Israel's ability to sustain that both militarily and politically. We're talking about a, what, 140 plus square miles and 2.2 million people you know people could like want to compare going in you know conducting counterinsurgency in gaza with mosul or i've heard volusia or this or that those are just single cities we're talking about you know a small country here that that has to be occupied by israel if this is indeed what they're going to do and i just i question whether they have the capacity to do that long term both militarily and politically both internally, politically, as well as, and particularly externally with uh, international um, opinion. Any thoughts on that, guys? One thing that Israel doesn't have is time. <laughs> so yeah. uh, so that kind of goes to the, to the uh, political aspect of, of what uh, both of you have talked about. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, you see it in the media, protests, things like that, and and obviously there's there's, there's pressure from other governments. So, and I've been saying this since the beginning. What Israel doesn't have is time, and uh, um, it's just it's not there. So I don't I, like if we talk about yeah occupying Gaza, for example, which is a possibility. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it's it's out there. I just don't I don't think they they have the time to do that. But this is going to be to. Rec- 
to remove Hamas from Gaza, or as it's been said already, to defang Gaza, if they want to defang Hamas from its military capabilities, that's going to take so much time. And I don't think the Israelis have it. That's that's the concern here more than anything for me. Uh, so I, I, again, that's just, just my two cents on that. No, and it gets back to Benham's point, right? Like, yeah. what's yeah. next, right? Okay, right. so Hamas, let's say they Hamas is defanged, and we still have a radicalized population that's, you know, look, been exposed to years of war with Israel, and, you know, it sees things through, it. the Palestinian people see things through their lens. Um, we may not agree with it, but we have to understand it to, to a degree, right? Um, you know, this is what they see. This is what they're being fed. You know, just defanging the um gaza it doesn't you know that's not the answer to well what next and a lengthy occupation you know that's i really do think that the iranians thought this one through they've they've killed several birds with one stone by by supporting hamas to launch this operation they killed the abraham cords they've put the u.s in a really precarious situation with its basing particularly in iraq and syria it's gotten Arab countries not friendly to Iran to take a position on the Palestinian issue. It's, you know, reinvigorated the Arab street, which has been quiet for what a decade now, you know, um, and, you know, put Israel really in a possible situation, but uh, let's take a, let's move on to the, um, the, the next issue here, the potential for this war widening outside of Israel, right. As a, Obviously, it's possible, and if not likely, that once the ground offensive in Gaza begins, that Hezbollah is going to weigh in. Then we have the possibilities of uh, Iraqi Shia and other militias um, weighing in. You know, as as Benham noted last week, we had the Houthis launch a missile strike against um, Israel uh, that the U.S. and I heard the Saudis shot down one missile as well. I wonder if that's true. Um, you know. We're looking at, you know, is Iran trying to inflame this? Is it in Iran's interest for this conflict to blow up past um, Israel to make this a a wider regional war? Um, Benham, what are your thoughts on that? I think Iran itself has a a catch-22, but it's content with the nature of of Israel's catch-22. That's what's buying at the breathing room in the time. I think the real proxy uh, to ke- keep your eye on uh, is obviously Lebanese Hezbollah. Obviously, you have some uh, Palestinian terror groups also kind of cohabitating there. You have that Iran, whatever, COAC, Command and Control Center, uh, also uh, in Lebanon. Uh, but if the Reuters report that from a few days ago we saw remains true, uh, Iran wants two different conflict circles. One aimed at America to reduce American political support for Israel and the bank on American risk aversion and, you know, casualty sensitivity uh, to not come uh, to Israel's aid, such that Israel may not be able to militarily accomplish its objective, which on a good day would be removing one element of the axis of resistance off of the regional chessboard, if you will. In that in that scenario, Iran will suffer a blow, a, pre- a major prestige blow. I mean, the Islamic Republic will suffer a major pre- prestige blow uh, if, you know, one of the biggest Palestinian rejectionist groups ever, uh, you know, faces not just political defeat, but military defeat uh, at, at the hands of the IDF. Make no mistake about that. The Iranians will then worry about a contagion effect, 
no matter how poorly uh, a land occupation or land war can go, they will worry about a contagion effect or they'll, the smarter military folks in the Islamic Republic will have to worry about a contagion effect. Of, will the Israelis want to ride a high and maybe not move to defang Hezbollah, but go deeper against the militia infrastructure in Syria that reinforces Hezbollah? So they have to worry about a contagion effect there, because if the theory of military force against the axis of resistance is proven true uh, in one theater, uh, then it may take on saliency in Yemen again, in Lebanon, in Syria, and potentially again in Iraq. And the Iranians who have, you know, for lack of a better word, exported in their own word that the revolution eastward created this land bridge. And today, the I want to use this word because I have two Iranian quotes in mind. The Islamic Republic expresses power in geographic terms. We remember that quote from, I think, late 2014, uh, an Iranian parliamentarian talking about the three or four Arab capitals that Iran controls. Uh, in 2019, you had another Iranian Friday prayer leader uh, talk about um, uh, Iran being what what constitutes the definition of Iran is not just the physical borders of the state of Iran. He talked about the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. He talked about the Syrian regime. He talked about Lebanese Hezbollah. He talked about the Houthis. So these guys are thinking in transnational terms. And if there is military defeat against one element of this hub-and-spoke system, uh, what the regime does fear is uh, the military strategy being employed potentially in a combination fashion by the U.S. and Israel uh, in all of these theaters where for the past two decades, the U.S. and Israel, but mostly the U.S., have said there is no military solution. Uh, and because whenever the U.S. says that, Iran, through its proxies, can enter a conflict earlier, cheaper, shape an escalation spiral, and create a political outcome based on violence. And make no mistake, this is the part of the strategy here. Iran is trying to effectuate a political goal through violence. And it's also trying to buy breathing room and save and bail out uh, Hamas right now. Before getting Lebanese Hezbollah involved, Iran is trying to threaten this potential regional spiral against America uh, such that, you know, it would make America responsible to break it, you buy it for the thing that America, especially under this administration, but the last three presidents have talked about the Middle East being a junk bond and us having to leave. And the American population has voted for them, in my view, mostly because of that, uh, mostly because it's a referendum on, on some of the things that we've seen. And the way each politician, Obama, Trump, Biden, has sold that narrative of the Middle East being a junk bond uh, to the public. The Iranians are cognizant of that. And especially now when Biden has been, before the conflict broke out, uh, been talking about de-escalation and de-confliction. Uh, and even, you know, you remember that line from uh, Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, that region is quieter than it's ever been. Um, they're banking on all of that to restrain America. And when they have these, you know, sporadic uh, or, or now more systematic, I should say, indirect fire attacks, it's designed to prey at that fear that this is in your interest, that uh, you are the responsible power. So and you can't afford this and you don't have the public support for this. And so as much as of a catch-22 that they are in, meaning that the most powerful proxy uh, in the Levant, Hezbollah, is only firing anti-tank weapons and a couple of rockets over the border and thus far restrained because if, hypothetically, Hezbollah is removed from the chessboard, that opens the way not just for the dismantling of the axis, that opens the way for 
you know, kinetic action against Iran's nuclear program. Uh, you've had multiple people talk about this, former FDD John Hanna, uh, current FDD Mark Dubowitz. I've mentioned this in, in testimony before. I'm sure all of you have thought about the same idea. But with Hezbollah's conventional deterrence against Israel, Iran is able to retain its nuclear program. And it's very much akin to the 38th parallel North Korea-South Korea problem. Use conventional firepower to safeguard your nuclear capability. Um, and, and in this instance, that is Iran's catch-22. At what point does Hezbollah come in? Is Blinken's recent commentary about Iran not getting involved really actually commentary about Hezbollah not getting involved? Uh, and so as much of it of a strategic kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, that the Iranians have tried to foist onto the Israelis, make no mistake, they're also in a pickle. Uh, and that's why I think forceful U.S. responses against where the U.S. is coming under attack the bolstering of the defenses, uh, both naval and on land, uh, for this whole unmanned aerial threat spectrum, that should be, you know, price floor, least common denominator approach that we're taking uh, before we move to, you know, something potentially offensively or be before the Israelis uh, move in with their operation. But I think that's that's how they see it. Now, a quick follow up. Do you think that Iran would be so? Look, we discussed. We think the Israelis would certainly have a hard time dealing with Gaza alone, if it's embroiled in the second front, do we really think that the Israelis can destroy Hezbollah or just set them back here, right? The Israelis, I mean, look, going into Gaza would hurt Hamas. And I think that the, my estimation, this is just, you know, me gaming this out. I think the Iranians would be perfectly fine with losing Hamas as long as it weakened Israel um, and if it had the effect of the U.S. retreating from the Middle East, that's a win. I understand what you're saying about Hezbollah being its premier proxy, but would, I don't think the Israelis would really have the ability to root out Hezbollah. This doesn't have it doesn't have the appetite for going back into southern Lebanon. I mean, it's not even southern Lebanon anymore. The, the Hezbollah essentially controls that government, uh, does it not? Yeah, and I mean. This is, this is also part of Iran's gamble. Um, how effectively could the Israelis not just do a two-front war, but how effectively, at a minimum, could they do two-front deterrence uh, against this Iranian network, or multi-front deterrence? Uh, how can you hold off the Syrian and the Lebanese front while you are uh, trying to support uh, the, the land component uh, of the campaign against Hamas in Gaza? Um, but I, I, I still do think that Iran doesn't want Hamas to be taken off the chessboard. Um, what is unclear right now, and what that Reuters report was saying about, you know, Iran greenlighting Lebanese Hezbollah to only partially get involved in the low-intensity attacks on the U.S. in Iraq and Syria, is that Iran is also trying to avoid direct blame right now. Uh, it is also trying to avoid direct uh, kinetic overt American and Israeli retaliation, as well as to potentially delay probably likely what's coming, which is more of the things that go bump in the night uh, across the Islamic Republic at the missile depots and arms factories and all, all the, and the nuclear sites and all the other things that we've seen really in slow motion since 2020, if not earlier. Um, so they do have that uh, to be concerned about. Joe, any, any thoughts yeah. on that? Actually, I'm just going to ask something to Benham because I was just thinking about yeah, this. Go for it. Um, Your show too, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, we have a multi, so, we have a multi-directional campaign here. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So it's a conversation uh, gentlemen. Yeah. It's just a conversation. So I'm just curious. So Benham, do you think 
if Iran said, told Hassan Nasrallah, I want you to attack Israel, open up a front, right? Do you think Nasrallah has enough? Um, uh, do you think he would actually do it? Uh, could he say, you know, do you think he could say, you know what? I think this is a bad idea because of, uh, you know, A, B, C, and D, right? Because Lebanon is already, I mean, they, he would be, uh, a war with Israel, of course, would would destroy Lebanon. Uh, it's just, that's just what's going to happen, right? So uh, do you think Hassan Astralik could say, uh, no, no, thank you? And I, I'm just curious if he has enough leeway for him for, to, you know, accept or, you know, do what uh, Iran wants him to do, right? So I'm, I've always thought about that, really, just with other conflicts as well. But I'm just curious your take on that. You know, I don't want to go up the pulpit and, and, and hijack the, the conversation, but I, no, but I will no, say no, this. I actually this have is, a thought on this as well, Venom. Do, do, I'm it, curious. It's as much academic as it is policy. You know, the, a lot of DC folks, you guys will hear us say that, you know, these two, it's the most successful proxy because it's the one that Iran not just has the most command and control over. We've seen it, but Iran has used, has both to train other militias so many times. It actually is the one that even pre-Soleimani or even when Soleimani is doing other stuff, can break the language barrier with with, with some of the IRGC and the other uh, militias that are Arab. So Hezbollah Trained has the training. Of Al-Qaeda. There you go. There you go. There's the connective tissue. It's not just that the IRGC and the Quds forces, the spine, and these are the the things that come off is that there are different capabilities different proxies have. Um, then that's the, the DC conversation overemphasizes the C2 that Iran controls over Hezbollah. The academic conversation talks about, um, what is it called? A principal agent problem, where the more powerful the agents becomes, kind of like, well, they have the state now, they have these own capabilities, narco trafficking and everything else has given them significant revenues. Uh, they get their own remittances. They've really, even though they get minimum 700 million, but probably more from Iran a year, uh, they have other revenue streams as well. They have a broadening constituency. They also don't want to lose literally the state that gave them all this stuff, which is what Joe was talking about. This school would say they have an incentive not to fire. Um, you know, very kind of in a roundabout way, I'll say I've been in war games where the team playing the acts of the resistance, and in particular, the team playing uh, Hezbollah, um, wants to drag their feet when there's a go order given. I think that tells you a lot more about the analyst who's playing Hezbollah than I think what Hezbollah itself would do. I think Hezbollah knows it was created for this kind of situation. It doesn't mean Iran and Hezbollah didn't even have friction. They had a lot of friction even in the 80s when it was being set up, the proto-Hezbollah. It doesn't mean that just because they converge 99% of the time, there can't be a 1% chance. So in, in this world, I think Hezbollah, particularly Nasrallah, would begin to open a northern front, right? The, the, it's never not doing something or doing something. It's, okay, you know, you want us to move from anti-tank fire to rocket fire. Just enough over the border. And then Iran's like, no, we told you open. And then like, okay, yeah, now we're going to splice in the PGMs amid the rocket fire and we're going to extend the range, you know, an extra 20. And then Iran's like, no, no, do it again. And then they went, okay, fine, we'll have a couple more barrages. It'll, it'll, I think they'll enter in a graduated fashion because of what the, uh, I'm just mentioning some analysts who talk about this in D.C., like the David Dawoods, the, the Hanin Radars will say about Hezbollah is trying to defend its local constituency, doesn't want to eradicate itself. So uh, they're cognizant of that, but they're also cognizant of their relationship with their patron. Uh, one doesn't negate the other. 
you know, in DC, we either talk about it's just the patron and then they will do everything or other folks, this is again, not an insult to them. I'm just saying that these two scholars who again, study Hezbollah and Lebanon much more closely than I have, they do tend to focus on the local actor agency. But again, none of these exist in a vacuum, they exist together. So I think in a world where that go order is given, Joe, it's going to be a graduated entry. But ultimately, it will happen if the Iranians make clear that this is the this is the conflict that you are prepared for. This is our version of the 2006. So we need you to do it. Um, it doesn't mean that in the pace, place where they're not active, they're not serving the interest. Just like, you know, Trump used to say, we want the biggest military so we don't have to use it. Iran wants this thing so that it can have the death by a thousand cuts against Israel. But until it gets there, Iran wants this thing for the conventional deterrence to prevent Israel from having any kind of kinetic response, any kind of kinetic response from Israel to Lebanon, but most definitely any kind of kinetic response from Israel to Iran. So even in the world where it doesn't fire, the presence of the fangs in many ways is still a handicap to Israel. Yeah, my take on this, I think that they, do you guys ever see the movie Death of Stalin? Yeah, yeah. You know the scene when they're in the Politburo after um, Stalin's dead, and they have to get consensus, right? And so they're not going to make any decision until everyone in the room agrees, because we can't have factionalism. I suspect that you have, and Ben, I'm, I'm, I agree with you, and this this sort of plays into that. Iran's not going to ask Hezbollah to do something of that magnitude unless Hezbollah is going to be on board with it to some degree. And Iran very likely understands the limits of what Hezbollah is willing, willing to sacrifice. And Hezbollah is very understanding of what, you know, Iran is asking of it. Um, I think that's probably the dynamic that you have here. Look, we have militia leaders. Um, we know members of Hezbollah are members of the IRGC, right? I mean, the the boundaries are blurred, but and as you note very wisely, note Benham, the Iran doesn't want to just throw away its premier proxy in Hezbollah. It wants to preserve it, so it has to listen to Hezbollah um, leaders. It has to listen to Hassan Nasrallah and say, "Yes, we want to throw in, but this is what the limits of what we can do." And I suspect at some point they come up with some type of consensus. This is look. This is just my I, I, opinion I agree. on how this I, I works. Agree. And I think they're responsive to external stimuli. They want to, you know, this patron proxy is, Bill, this last point. Iran will say, yeah, we need this. But then tell us, what is the human terrain like? What is the conditions like on the ground? Uh, what other kind of support can you marshal? How much of a high domestically are you riding? You know, if, if Israel is bloodies your nose, what, what kind of breathing room does that give you politically? Give us the flavor of the month on the street give us what you know what you've been testing what is fired what is what is misfired uh what is the morale of your men they're, they're going to be responsive to external stimuli um because i don't think this is yet the nightmare scenario which is the nightmare scenario is just you know the overt sustained raid on iran's nuclear program and that's the you know the you know that's that's the ultimate you know go order for hezbollah in the absence of that it is responsive to external stimuli all right, gentlemen, uh, that's a, a lot to digest there today. Does anyone have anything else to add real quick before we um, we uh, call it quits today? 
Oh, nothing on my end yet. I was I was expecting uh, some news about this event that happened uh, a few hours ago, but nothing yet. Unfortunately, I've been uh, I've been checking. Believe me. So, but uh, I expect uh, some news will happen. Uh, Joe, if it happens, we could jump on for a quick one. Uh, hopefully, yeah. it's someone like Dave Marisa, right? Yeah, yeah. Who, who, who knows? Uh, who knows? So we'll we'll see what what, what happens. So, but yeah, but uh, but yeah, that's it. Venom, any parting thoughts? Uh, no, I spoke way too much. I, I'm no, that's why you're here, Venom. You're my guest. I always uh, worry that I speak too much while you guys are in the room, you know? No, no it's no, a, no. a great conversation, keep, guys. Keep your eyes on the proxies, yeah. I'm really glad we got to address that last issue, too, guys. That was, I think that's, Joe, that was, that's an, it's really an extra excellent point. And, and Venom, you laid out the answer to that perfectly. It's, you know, people do really think it's one way or the other when it's often a blend of of the two. Like I look at the Abu Mahdi Mahandas, right? He was the the Iraqi who put together the Iraqi militias and U.S. designation. He's identified as a Quds Force officer, but he's an Iraqi. You know, Musa Ali Dakhtu, the Hezbollah Special Forces commander who the U.S. captured and interrogated and then released also responsible for building these guys they understand he, he was a member of hezbollah they understand he's back with hezbollah now they're very influential figures within their organizations they can communicate up and back through the chain of command to you know to to really help the understanding of the pros and cons and the limitations of the groups they're dealing with um I do hate, but you know, Ben, I always joke, Washington's very binary. Something's either on or off. It's pro or anti. And they don't look, you know, for a group of people that wants to talk about, you know, we need to understand the nuances. They can't nuance things like, like what that item that we just discussed here. So I'm really happy, Joe, that you probably had the most insightful question of today's program. Thanks, guys. It deserves its own episode. It deserves its own thing. It's a really intense. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah. You have any, Joe? Well, no, no. Benham, you said it. I mean, he said what I was really thinking, like, like like he usually does, but always in a much better, much better way. But no, no. <laughs> then I'm sure to make you know to make us look bad. Yeah, yeah right, right, right. <laughs> but no, but seriously, it's um, yeah, like you're saying. I think there are there are a lot of factors, but in the uh, uh that, that go into a decision like like Hezbollah opening up a real a second front, like really opening up, not not any of this little stuff that and I hate saying it little stuff because people have died, but but the, what we're seeing now in the in the northern front in the last couple weeks that's it's just so it's nothing uh he's got compared to what it could be yes exactly we know what that looks like exactly so yeah we know you know especially if you follow these groups closely so anyway yeah there's a lot of factors involved but i think in the end if iran orders hezbollah to uh, open up a second front that uh nasrallah would acquiesce right he would they would do it so that's what they've been training for for years and years and years so uh, so in the end, yeah, but um, there are some caveats to it, I think, uh, in the end. But uh, again, Benham, you said it perfectly. So, uh, so that's all I really have to say on that subject. <laughs>